It's my joy to be here this morning. And of course, we're all here to see one person, and that's Jesus Christ, and him lifted up in the marketplace and in our lives. So before I begin, I'd like to ask him to be with us one more time. Please bow your heads as I kneel in prayer. Loving Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be here with your people, with your children. And Lord, we ask that you would be present not only among us but within us. I ask that you would hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. I have a question to begin. Does God love you? Yes. Amen. Does God love his son Jesus? Well, yes. Does God love the angels that surround his throne? Sure. Does God love his church here on earth? Does God love the people who don't know him yet? Does God love the people who do know about him but have chosen not to follow him? Does God love those that are lost? Does God love the evil angels? Does God love Satan? You know, it's interesting, as I go through this cycle of questions, we start out, yes, yes, and then yes, maybe, I'm not sure, Uh, probably. The second question is also simple, if God loves you, why? Think about that for a moment. I'm going to share with you how my life was transformed by a text message. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I mean, many of you use cell phones every day, and saying your life is changed by a text message is like saying, my life was changed by a forwarded email. But it was. I was at a time when I was going to meet with my boss. Now, this wasn't for an interview. This was my boss saying, Dr. Riesenberger, I need to meet with you sometime. That's usually not good, by the way. It's usually fairly uh, distressing, in fact. So I asked my friends to pray for me, and one friend sent me a text message. They said, I'm praying that God will give you the words that you need to speak at the right time. I'm claiming Luke chapter 12 for you. Whatever happens, I'm proud of you. Very sweet, nice text message, but it bothered me to no end because what was said was, whatever happens, whatever, right, I'm proud of you. Now, whatever could include being fired, could it not? And I can tell you I've worked full-time during the summers, part-time during the school year since I was 15, and I've never been fired from any job. They said, whatever happens, I'll be proud of you? I wouldn't be proud of myself if I was fired. What happened to Dr. Riesenberg? Oh, you know, he was fired. Certainly the people at my job know that I'm a Christian. They know that I'm an Adventist. They know that I go to church on that funny day. They know I eat funny, vegetarian. What kind of witness would that be if I were fired? So I struggled with that for a long time, and the Lord brought me to a message that has transformed my life. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 
2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 25. 2 Samuel 14 and verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now, to say there was no blemish in him from head to toe is another word for saying he was perfect. But perfection does not always extend to the inside. Keep your Bibles open to this area. We're going to be reading through this story quickly. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, we find Absalom at the gate of the city. There are men lined up to talk to the king about a suit, about a complaint. And Absalom says to them, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has a suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. Now, who was Absalom? Yes, David's son. So he was the, the prince. Absalom was encouraging people to come to him rather than to the king. And in verse 6, we read what the result of this behavior was, that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. But it gets worse. Drop down to verses 10 through 12, and we find that Absalom has proclaimed himself king. Absalom reigns in Hebron, it says at verse 10. Verse 12, we find, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Now, who was Ahithophel? That's kind of a funny name, isn't it? Does anyone know who he was? Certainly, he was a counselor of David. We read that from the text. But he was Bathsheba's grandfather. If you doubt, it's 2 Samuel 11.3 and 2 Samuel 24.34 that will give you those insights. Now, how do you think Ahithophel felt about David at this point? Can you imagine your grandson-in-law is assassinated by the king? He sleeps with your granddaughter, impregnates her, lies about it in front of everybody... And what punishment does the king receive? Nothing that you can see. Ahithophel was waiting to even the score with the house of David. And he found this opportunity with the rebellion of Absalom. But it gets worse. Go to chapter 16 and verse 11. You'll find that David is fleeing for his life from Jerusalem because his son has marched into the city to take it over. David does not stay to fight for the city. He does not want to see Jerusalem devoted to bloodshed. And as he's fleeing, a guy comes out of the city. He throws rocks at him and says, that's right, you better run. God is getting you back from all the bloodshed that you committed to the house of Saul. And did David do that? Did David commit sin against the household of Saul? Remember what David did in the cave of Adullam? When Saul went in there, David was next to him, could have just killed him immediately. And what did he do? He took the hem of his robe and cut it off. And even that caused David's conscience to bother him. 
When Saul was asleep at his feet, his servant next to David said, Look, I'll strike him once. I won't have to strike him again. And David says, Don't touch the Lord's anointed. David never at any time did any wrong against the house of Saul. These were false accusations. But listen to what David says in verse 11. David said to Abishai and to all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, is seeking my life. How much more may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. So we find here that Absalom is seeking to kill his own father. It gets worse. Let's take a look at verses 20 through 22 of the same chapter. 2 Samuel 16, verses 20 to 22. And Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. Absalom has set up his kingdom now in Jerusalem, and he asks his closest counselor what his first move should be. Ahithophel tells him to sleep with his father's wives on top of the house. You don't get worse than what Absalom was doing. We're told by inspired counsel that Absalom, by doing this, added to his sins of rebellion and murder the sin of incest. Now we come to the scene of the battle in chapter 18. David has mustered his forces, and who has the larger army? Do you know? Absalom, by a long shot, we're told by inspiration that Absalom's forces so outnumbered David's that compared to his army, David's men were a little handful. Ellen White says the odds were totally against David. And if not God and his intervention, David would be lost and all of his men. David, he divides his company in chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. He divides them into three groups, and he gives them one final order as they march out. What is that order? He says, deal gently for my sake. With who? With the young man Absalom. And did he whisper this in the general's ears? No, it says that every single person heard as he gave orders about Absalom. So the armies meet together in the wood of Ephraim. The battle commences, and David's forces are victorious. Absalom sees that his cause is lost, and he goes to flee, but he gets caught by his hair in a tree. And the mule continues to move, and he's there dangling in midair. A soldier finds him and doesn't kill him. He comes to the general and says, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree. Joab, in verse 11 of chapter 18, says, You just saw him. Why didn't you kill him? I would have rewarded you. And in verse 12, we understand the seriousness of the command of King David. The soldier says to Joab, though you would have given me a thousand pieces of silver, I wouldn't have touched Absalom because you heard the king as he spoke in our presence. Beware lest any of you touch the young man Absalom. Joab says, whatever, I can't talk with you. He goes, gets his men, stabs not one, not two, but three spears into the heart of Absalom. And while he's there in cardiogenic shock, He's surrounded by ten guys, beaten up, killed, thrown in a pit, a lot of rocks on top of him, the end of Absalom. 
But there's still one more thing that you need to do. Who's waiting in the city to find out the results of the battle? David. They send a messenger. Take a look. Verse 28. The messenger says, all is well. He bowed down his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king's first question is not, wow, were there many casualties? His first comment was not, praise the Lord who has delivered me from my enemies. What is his first question? Is the young man Absalom safe? The messenger gives him a very vague response. So the next messenger comes. The next messenger in verse 31, there is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. Does David say, yeah, the first guy said that. Thank you for risking your life for me. Does he say, praise God who has delivered me from the mouth of the lion and the bear and now from this rebellion? Do you realize his question is the same? The same words are used. He says, is the young man Absalom safe? This message is given a different response. He says, may all the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do you harm be like that young man is. So now David knows that Absalom is dead. I want you to look very carefully at verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept, and as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. A simple question for you. Did David love Absalom because Absalom was a loyal subject of his kingdom? Do you realize the war that killed more United States citizens than all of our wars combined? What was it? The Civil War. That is what Absalom did to the nation of Israel. So that wasn't the reason. So perhaps David loved Absalom because he was an affectionate son. He's trying to kill his own father. Going against even natural affection. So that wasn't the reason. Perhaps David loved Absalom because Absalom had a pure heart and a moral character. Friends, you don't get worse than incest times ten. That wasn't the reason that David loved Absalom. And so I ask you a simple question. Why did David love Absalom? Because wicked though he was, he was, after all, David's son. And at that moment, God spoke to my mind three words that I will never forget as long as I live. And it wasn't like fire was on the sky or the ceiling. I didn't hear a voice. I didn't go over to the closet and open it up, see if someone was there. I say, though, that God spoke to me because a new thought entered my mind. And it went something like this. Tim, I don't love you because you are a doctor and you save people's lives every day. 
Tim, I don't love you because you dedicate a week out of every month to my cause. I don't love you because you share your testimony. I don't love you for all the good things that you do, though it makes me happy. I don't love you because you're a Christian, and I don't love you because you're an Adventist. These things please me, but it is not why I love you. Tim, I love you, and here's the three words, because you're mine. And at that moment, I fell to my knees, and I cried more than I have cried in my whole life because I saw God at last. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't like I didn't know God loved me. Of course I knew God loved me. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? For the Bible tells me so. But I can tell you, understanding why he loved me has transformed my life. And I want to share with you that I have seen this truth my entire professional career and not understood until that moment. Come with me to the emergency department. Dr. Riesenberger, we have a level one trauma that will arrive in five minutes. The patient is a 15-year-old male who was T-boned at highway speeds. His left side was crushed by the accident. He is not breathing. His heart is not beating. All other passengers were so thrown clear, and no one else is injured. The paramedics are trying to intubate the patient, and CPR is in progress. Five minutes. So I suit up. I call for x-ray. I call for neurosurgery. I call for trauma. I call for four units of blood, O negative. I call for a chest tube, a central line. And we prepare as this young man will struggle for his life. The paramedics wheel him in, and they're doing CPR, and every time they compress, I hear a crunch, crunch, crunch with each compression. They throw him down on the gurney in front of me. I quickly grab the endotracheal tube. I snake it through the bloody cords of his trachea. I turn on the ventilator, and a red column of blood goes up and down out of the tube. I realize his lung is crushed by bleeding, and it needs to be reinflated. So I slap some iodine on his chest, quickly insert a chest tube. And as I insert that chest tube, a liter of blood comes out, two liters, three liters. And at that moment, I step away because I know that this young man will die. Someone catches the look on my face, and they say, no, why? Why wasn't it me that drove today instead of him? And who was that? That was his father. And that young man died. Come with me to the emergency department. The nurse taps me on the shoulder, Dr. Riesenberger, we need an order for an IV, for medications, for fluids. We have an eight-year-old girl who's vomiting out in the waiting room. I said, okay, here's the order. And I see this little girl wheeled back to the room. She's apparently eight years old, but she looks like she's probably four. She's very small, wasted away. She has no hair. And she's vomiting uncontrollably from the chemotherapy for her cancer. 
She vomits up her lunch. Then she vomits up clear. Then she vomits up yellow. Then she vomits up green. And as she begins to vomit up blood, and we can't stop it, I hear a cry in the corner of the room, Why? Why? Wasn't it me that had the cancer instead of her? Who was that? That was her mother. And I can tell you story after story after story. Gunshot wound to the chest. We're giving blood, more blood, cross-clamping the aorta. CPR directly on the heart, injecting epinephrine into the cardiac chamber. I keep calling for more blood. We're up to about 40 units of blood. And the blood bank calls from overhead and said, Dr. Riesenberger, there is no O-negative blood in this hospital. You have used it all. Immediately, someone pushes their way through, lays down on the gurney next to the trauma victim, and says, I have O-negative. Take all that you need. Who was it? his father. Were these parents Christians, would you say? Not necessarily. They could have been. In this case, not one of them. But they understand the truth that transforms the world of why God loves you and I. You see a glimpse of that love when a parent is holding their dying child and they're slipping away from their grasp. And you say, Tim, that's too much. That's too, that's too amazing. That's crazy love. God can't love me that much because you don't understand, Tim. I, I, I've done so many things that are against God. I'm such a hypocrite. You don't know my story. In fact, I'm pretty sure by this time I've committed the unpardonable sin. Do you want to know when the unpardonable sin occurs? I can tell you right now. Come back to me. We're going to go to the ER again. I get a call. Dr. Riesenberger, we have a seven-month-old baby in full arrest. He was put down to sleep by his grandmother earlier tonight on his stomach. Don't do that, by the way. And he was found to be blue and not breathing shortly afterwards. Medics are trying to intubate the child. He will come in five minutes. I call for pediatrics. I call for x-ray. I pull out a dose of epinephrine and atropine. I charge up the defibrillator. And we prepare for the arrival of this baby. They're bringing him in and they're doing compressions on this little chest. I managed to snake a little straw-like tube into his vocal cords, and I turn on the ventilator, and I start breathing for him. I turn on my monitor, and I see a big, flat line. Or perhaps it's not flat. Maybe there's a little ventricular fibrillation. Shock him. Boom. Nothing. We give him epinephrine. We give him atropine. We give him fluids. We shock him several more times, and we begin to fight the battle for this child's life. Ten minutes go by. Twenty minutes go by. Thirty minutes go by. And at 30 minutes, something always happens. I hear footsteps behind me, 
and I already know who it is. I don't even need to turn around. Those footsteps stop right behind me, and they wait for a moment. After that moment, I feel a touch on my shoulder, and I turn around, and who is it? It's one of the parents at this point, the father in this case. And he said, Dr. Riesenberger, I appreciate everything you've done for my boy Johnny, but I've been watching him for the last 30 minutes. I haven't seen him take a breath on his own, except with your machine. And I've been watching your monitor up on the screen, and I see that flat line, and, and I watch ER at home, and I know that's not good. And so at this point, I need to know something from you in your professional opinion. Is there any hope? They all ask the same question. And if I turn to him and say, Mr. Johnson, you know, before you arrived, I saw Johnny breathe a little bit on his own. Before you made it into the room, I saw a little activity from his heart. I think we still have a small chance that he will live again. What do you think he would say? Go! Keep going. Why are you talking to me? Take care of my son. But that's not what I said. I said, Mr. Johnson, you're right. Even if you were to see your son's heart beat right now, and he were to start breathing on his own right now, his brain is gone. There is no hope. That is when the unpardonable sin occurs. Do you understand? What do you think the parents tell me when I tell them there's no more hope? We'll shock him again. Do they say that? Why don't you poke him a few more times? Why don't you put a couple more tubes in him so he can suffer before he dies anyway? Do you think anyone says that? Not one has ever told me to do that. What do you think they say? They all say the same thing. They cry as they mourn the loss of their child. And then they ask me, please, can you stop? Can you turn your machine off? Can you take the needles away and pull the tubes out so that we can say goodbye to our Johnny? And you know what I do? I do just that. I turn off the machine. I pull out the tubes. I tell the nurses to clear out the needles. Time of death, 2.34 a.m. Give the Johnsons time with their son. I walk out of the room. I pull the curtain. And he dies. That is when the unpardonable sin occurs. When God looks into your soul and he knows that whether he sends you blessing or affliction, whether he sends you counsel from someone or directly from his spirit, that there is no turning back. There is no hope. God does what any loving parent 
would do, and he lets you go. Because who of any parent would want the last moments of their child to be suffering and pain? He lets you go. As I consider the patients that I've seen, as I consider them in the light of the love of God, I understand God now in a new way, in a different way. God says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that how many? Any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I understand now why in Matthew 18, 12, that God leaves the 99 in the wilderness and goes after the one that's lost. I have asked this question of many audiences, and I've seen parents who have up to, I think, 14 kids was the largest. And I told them, I said, 13 of your children are fine. One is in critical condition in the ICU. Where are you going to be right now? In the ICU. God, of all the worlds that he has created, is focused on one, and that is our world, because his children are in danger. All of his efforts are focused here. Though he loves all his children, he is right where every single parent would be. I understand. Let me paint it this way. Perhaps I walked over to this mother of this child that's just passed away, and as she and her husband are mourning the loss of Johnny, I go over and place my hand on their shoulder and I say, Mrs. Johnson, I'm so sorry you've lost your son, but I see that you're very young, and in fact, you have a couple other children there already, so that should be okay. Then I really would lose my job. <laughs> probably get slapped, too. And in fact, perhaps I could say that you're still young. You could have another child and call him Johnny. How would that be? It wouldn't be the same, would it? In fact, are there any twins in the audience? What if I told your parents that one of you was killed in a car accident, but it was okay because the other twin survived? Would it make any difference? To your parents? Not a bit. Because yes, God is creator, but some of us occasionally think of him as creator of a science project. You know, you make a little clay pot, it doesn't work out, so you smash it and start all over again. I'm sorry, it's not that way. God can't make another you. Every child is unique and special. In fact, I will illustrate it to you in a way you'll never forget. How many of us want to come up in the resurrection? The first resurrection. Right? 
right? You remember what happens. You want to come up in the first resurrection because that's the resurrection of the just, right? So when you rise from the grave, I already know what you're going to do first. You're not going to go look for the lion and the lamb playing. You're not going to look for your angel. You're not even going to look for Jesus first. You know who you're going to look for first when you rise from the grave? You're going to look for your kids. And if you have 10 kids, you are going to count every one of them that comes up with you. Eight, nine, let's see, six, seven, eight, nine. And if you're missing one, even one, you are going to go directly to God in the throne room. That is going to be your first task. It's not go pick a fruit off the tree of life. It's going to go straight to God's throne room. And you're going to have a question for him. Did you know that? And that question will only have one word in it. And what will it be? Why? You'll bring your children and say, why? And I don't know what God will tell you, but I believe he'll take you by the hand. He'll walk you through the streets of gold and show you empty mansion after empty mansion after empty mansion and say, why? There's no reason why. I did all I could to save your son because he is mine as well. And you will mourn. You see, God does not wipe away the tears until after the second resurrection. Did you know that? You will mourn during those thousand years. As you look through the books and you read why, your child is not there. But there is one who will mourn more than all of us combined. And who is that? That is God because he is the great father of us all. I'm going to come to my point of Satan. Remember, I asked if God loves Satan. Do you have a better insight now? Do you understand why, of course, God loves Satan? Because he is the great father of us all. But there is a difference between you and Satan. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. We are in the great judgment day. On the right hand are the sheep. The left hand are the goats, right? Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. God says, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you since when? From the foundation of the world. Then God says to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for? It doesn't say you. It does not say you. What does it say? Do you notice the difference? How many people were designed to be lost? Zero. God wants to save how many? All. How many of your kids do you want to save? All. Don't you understand? God wants his children there more than anything else. 
and he's not willing to quit until he has them all or until there's no more hope. But watch the difference. Who was designed for the lake of fire? The devil and his angels. Do you see that there's a difference here? Is the devil a sinner? Sure. Are you a sinner? Sure. But what's the difference? Desire of Ages, page 761. You can write this down. Look it up later. Desire of Ages, 761. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. Why was the choice final for Satan? Well, the next sentence. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. Do you see the unpardonable sin? What more is God going to do to save him? There's no more. Now, why is that? Why is it that God could do mo no more to save Satan? Well, I'll ask you a question. What is the only thing that brings you to repentance? Yes, Romans 2.4. That's right. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the goodness and the riches of his grace, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How much of God's goodness did Satan know? Okay, if God is here, where was Satan? He's right next to him. You're not getting any closer to God. Satan knew God's goodness, and he chose anyway. There was no more that God could do to save him. That's why the devil and his angels are lost, because God has exhausted every resource. There's nothing more that God can show to Satan and his angels that will convince them. But now I'm going to finish the rest of the quote. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. That is the difference between you and I and Satan. I did not know the love of God. I did not know that God loved me as those parents love their child that's slipping through their fingers. I didn't understand the height and the depth of his great love for me. I was deceived. Have any of you ever woken up in the middle of the night out of a dead sleep and it's pitch black and you don't know where you are? Has that ever happened to you? That's happened to me several times. 
especially during residency. God bless you, Tim Arakawa. I wake up in the middle of the night. I don't know where I am because it's pitch dark. In fact, you don't even know which side of the bed your head is on. Is it on the left side or the right side? But what happens when someone cracks open the door? A little light comes in, and what do you immediately know? Everything. God has cracked the door of my heart, and I know where I am. And I know at last who he is. I see his love not only in my life, but I see his love even as I'm facing death. In fact, you sometimes see love of parents a lot clearer when the time is critical. But can you imagine? We come back into the ER. I've just pronounced this child dead. The father and mother have requested that I turn off the machine. And I walk over to the mother and I look her in the eyes and I say, you turn it off. What would she say? I, I, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. Because that's my son. And I can tell you that that is the same with God. You see, God is the only being in the universe that can truly give or take away life. Do you realize that? And when he knows that there is no more hope for you, he himself must let you die. He himself must allow you to sink into oblivion. And you know, I'm not exactly sure what he's going to say at that moment. But I know it's not going to be, well, you got what you deserved. That's not what it's going to be. In fact, I have an idea. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, gives us some insight. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. As my soul lives, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the righteous. Is it the good people? The death of who? The wicked. Now, you tell me, you understand probation, right? What happens when a wicked person dies? They're lost. Do you realize that? God is saying, I have no pleasure in the death of the lost, but that the wicked turn from his wicked way. Turn ye, turn ye, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God is not happy to see people lost. God is not happy to see someone reap the results of their sins. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, shows the inner conflict of the heart of God as he reaches over to turn off the ventilator, so to speak. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? I can't do it. Can you see the heart of God as the heart of a father, as the heart of a mother struggling to let go of their most precious earthly treasure? 
Consider this for a moment. I don't know what God will say, but you know, sometimes when I've pronounced, especially a child, and I walk out of the room and I pull the curtain, you know what I do sometimes? I wait by the curtain and I listen. And I've heard it dozens, if not maybe hundreds of times. I listen to what their final words are as that child dies. And it goes something like this. And I believe that God will be the same. I'm not exactly sure what words he'll use, but I can tell you the words that those parents have used through the years. They say goodbye. Our little treasure. Mommy and Daddy love you so much. Sissy is going to miss you. We're going to miss all the things that you put on the refrigerator. We're going to miss your little smile and all the joy that you brought to our home. The doctors and nurses tried so hard, but now it's too late. Go to sleep, little one. Rest in peace. But God will have to say, rest forever. And you will die. But God will mourn as one mourns for his only child. People have often asked me, what would happen, Tim, if uh, Eve goes and eats the fruit in the Garden of Eden? She comes to Adam. She says, look, here's the fruit. Take some. Uh, I'm good, thanks. No. What would happen? Of course, Adam is making the decision for the human race, right? So Eve's kind of left there. Now, I don't know exactly what would happen. It seems to hint in Patriarchs and Prophets that God who created Eve could supply her place. What does that mean? I don't know. But people question, well, what would happen to Eve? Do you know I know what would happen to Eve? Eve would face the consequences of sin. She would die. And Jesus would come to save her. Because he would die, we're told, in Desire of Ages. Jesus would come to the cross to die that even one might be saved in his kingdom. Do you realize that? One. But I know that that's true for each one of you. Each one of you as parents would lay your lives down without even thinking for one of your children. Consider for a moment God's most touching illustration in Isaiah. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt that way? Have you felt like your prayers just bounce off the ceiling? I've felt that way before. And then God answers. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have graven you, where? On the palms of my hands, 
and your walls are ever before me. You know, if you understand another language, I encourage you to read the Bible in that language. In Spanish, it says muros for walls. What does that make you think of? Murals, doesn't it? It's like the little things your child writes and you put on the refrigerator, and it's this big scribble. But if anyone tries to tell you that that's not you, you'll argue with them. No, that's me. Right there. See that little line? That's my hair. Yes, it is. You treasure those things. But I'm going to share something with you that you will never forget. Because after the thousand years, God will wipe away the tears from your eyes. How does he do that? I don't know. How does he cause those memories to go to the land of forgetfulness? I don't know. But he does. Because you're going to be happy after the thousand years. But consider this. When the heavens pass away, one thing remains of sin. And what is that? And where are we written? God can't forget. God can't forget. Don't you see? Where is every human being written? On the palms of his hands. He can't forget. And have you known a parent that's lost a child? I don't care how well-adjusted they are. I don't care how Christian they are. They're never the same. True or not. God will not be the same if even one of you is not there. Even one. Because you are forever written on the palms of his hands. The one thing that sin will leave behind is the memory of the children he has lost. Consider that for a moment. Consider the heart of God. And when you do, something will change. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2 is where I will close. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord who created you, place your name here, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. Here's the three words. You are mine. And when that happens, verse 2 will take place in your life. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. You're invincible when you know this. Because no matter what happens, something doesn't change. And that is what God thinks of you. Because you're mine. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www. .asiministries.org Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.